0: It's day 108 of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The time is 11.12 p.m. on June 12th, 2022 in Kyiv, and Severodonetsk still stands. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you, part of the Agora Podcast Network. I am Eric, your host, and I know that I promised that the next episode would not be about Ukraine, but—and I am working on that— but this episode is very timely, and I wanted to get it out quickly because the situation on the ground is potentially very, very fluid. Today's episode, Russia Invades Ukraine 8, Bold Strategies and High Stakes— So, as usual, just an update on the ground. So, in Severodonetsk, I decided to just learn how to pronounce these two cities. In Severodonetsk, you have huge numbers of troops on both sides and an artillery war going on big time around the area. Lots and lots and lots of Russian assaults to attempt to surround Severodonetsk and Lysychansk. And Russia just absolutely pounding the countryside with low-precision artillery, and just using their massive uh, material advantage to try to knock the Ukrainians into submission. But Russia is engaged in a serious urban combat situation in Severodonetsk and in particular has pushed the Ukrainians back to an industrial facility on the western part of town. Remember last time that happened? The Ukrainians held out at Mariupol in the Azol steel plant for a very, very, very long time. And that's where the Ukrainians are right now with many more troops and supplies coming in so this could be a very similar situation what's interesting actually a couple weeks ago or about a week ago the ukrainians actually counter in severodonetsk and pushed the russians back and out of about half the city which is just crazy it was called the miracle of severodonetsk the russians have actually taken back most of them, and the Ukrainians are in a highly fortified area in the western part, and again being supplied. Although the second bridge to Severodonetsk has been cut off, so it means that the Ukrainians now need to sort of go around using like T thirteen O two from uh, Novodzerzhinsk to try to get supplies into the area or to use pontoons, which uh, probably is what they're doing because it turns out they've got enough space there that they can probably do some pontooning. Although if those pontoons stay too long, the Russians will probably be able to target them pretty well. So Severodonetsk is a really interesting situation right now. In the surrounding area, if we look to the south, the Papanza salient is now less a salient and more of a just a kind of a peninsula. The Russians are not really in trouble there. They've got a lot of their best troops in Papanza, but they are trying to push forward and they are being repelled time and time again. Every now and then they take a village, but it takes a lot of attacks and it comes at great cost. This is probably good news for the Ukrainians. The Russians are about a kilometer away from T-1302. T-1302 is a highway that runs from Bakhmut to Lysychansk, which is across the river from Severodonetsk, and if they were to take that highway, I mean, they're a kilometer away, and that's what Papanza was—that the first objective of the Papanza front was to attempt to take that highway and cut off Lysychansk and Severodonetsk from uh, resupply. They have failed so far, and it's incredible the Ukrainians are holding it again with. With a kilometer to the north, things are surprisingly stable, mostly along the the river, and the Russians have one breakthrough from the river in the area of Sviatohirsk I haven't practiced all the names here Sviatohirsk in which they're trying to move down towards Slovyansk would be a good fallback point for the Ukrainians if they needed to fall back, although it's outside of the donetsk oblast and we'll talk about why that's significant in a minute up towards kharkiv it's kind of a stalemate the russians occasionally try to attack and the ukrainians are holding them off but down in Kherson, the ukrainians have been counterattacking. they've been taking back territory they're moving in on Kherson. along you want to kind of want to call it the whole front although it's a short front uh, but from multiple directions And it looks like the Russians are a little underpowered there, although they are, again, using a lot of artillery to try to disrupt the Ukrainians' ability to operate. But when the Ukrainians are not under artillery attack and they're able to move, they're able to move and they're able to push the Russians back. So the Ukrainians have an advantage there. The... Risk right now in Severodonetsk and Lysychansk is that if that road of life, as it's called, that highway that goes from Bakhmut to Lysychansk T-1302, if it's cut off, then Ukraine is at risk of probably losing at least 10,000 good troops in that area. The ammo situation is actually really bad for Ukraine right now. This is interesting and not something that I really thought about when I was doing my own analysis previously. So what's going on there is Ukraine is completely out of Soviet ammo, especially for long range artillery. They're just out, which means they're fully dependent on NATO ammo, but also NATO guns because and when I say guns, I mean like artillery, not rifles. They're completely reliant on NATO guns because Soviet ammo and NATO ammo fit different bores, fit different, they're different diameters. So this means that all of, all of Ukraine's Soviet artillery went silent. This is not the worst thing in the world as long as they can keep getting NATO ammo because that artillery is so indiscriminate that the Ukrainians haven't wanted to use it all that much because, you know, they'd be just hitting whatever and then blowing up a lot of their own territory. They have been willing to use it, but in a somewhat limited way, whereas they're much more willing to use the high-precision artillery that the West is able to provide. But the risk here is that the Ukrainians run out of this ammo if NATO doesn't keep sending it to them. And again... Um, they have much less artillery now than they used to firing, which means that the Russian artillery advantage is even bigger. One of the things we talked about in previous episodes is that while Russia has uh, worse troops who have like, very low morale, and they have bad command, and they have bad intelligence, they have a lot of artillery, and they're able to use that to their advantage, especially when it's closer range. When the Russians have a stable front, they can just launch artillery all day, and they haven't been shy about it. You can see photos of huge areas that are just, you know, it looks like World War I. It's just crater, 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 crater. And it's going to get worse in the Donbass. And so the the Ukrainians at this point, what's interesting is that they didn't get NATO support. They'd be out of ammo, right? They'd just be out. And so this is possibly why the Russians thought they had a chance in the Donbass. is because they understood that the Ukrainians have far, far less ammunition than they do and far fewer you know far less guns far less artillery you know if the ukrainians just ran out of ammo there wouldn't be a whole lot that they could do to stop the russians so the support from nato has been absolutely critical and continuing support from nato will be absolutely critical to give the ukrainians not just an advantage but a chance speaking of that artillery the ukrainian national guard troops who are basically there to like eat shells um, and prevent a breakout along the non-critical parts of the front. So if you think like kind of areas like Liman and Homiviski and around Horlivka, those areas where there's, where it's not quite as active, you know, you need troops there so that the Russians can't just walk in, right? Even though it's not under as much pressure. But the Russians are amping up the pressure with indiscriminate artillery. And so their morale is really hurting. Um, Again, these are national guard troops. They aren't the elite military. A lot of them are like volunteers who signed up. They're like, yeah, we're going to kill a bunch of Russians, right? At the beginning of the war. It's like, no, your job is to sit still and eat artillery. And it really sucks. It really, really sucks. And so there is a risk for them if they get attacked of retreat because they're just getting exhausted by their artillery barrages, right? You can't sleep. You can't do much. And like not sleeping in a war is really, really, really bad. The Severo Donets guys also are, you know, at risk here, right? They're under a ton of artillery barrage. They also don't have the ability to really sleep, whereas the Russians can more easily just kind of back up into friendly territory. The Sverdines guys mostly can't because they have to, you know, they're under assault. They have to hold the line. And those bridges to Lysychansk are now blown up. And so that means they're kind of stuck. But if you remember, the fighting soldiers in Mariupol held out completely surrounded with absolutely no, you know, absolutely nothing for almost two months. And so, the Russians, you know, while while the Ukrainians are you know, they're getting pounded, the Russians aren't again, aren't good at urban warfare and aren't good at breaking them. We finally heard what losses are starting to look like for the Ukrainians, and it's something like 100 to 200 troops a day. This is straight out of the mouth of President Zelensky, and that's death. So, it likely means 500 per day wounded, right? So, if you think of the you know, if you think of the, the Ukrainian military, they've got about 200,000 from the regular military and about 500,000 other kind of like National Guard and volunteers. So they're not going to literally run out of people, but they could start running out of their best troops and being down to that National Guard. We don't know how many troops Russia is losing per day. It's probably less than that. But it is also the case that Russia has far fewer troops in the area. So Ukraine can eat more casualties. There was a while where Russia was eating a lot more casualties. So it's hard to say what the casualty counts are total. And casualty counts only paint a very small picture of what's actually going on. But if the Ukrainians are willing to eat a lot of casualties, which they seem to be, they might be fine. Um, Again, as long as they can, the place they, the two places they really, really, really need to hold on to while they conduct operations elsewhere are north of Papanza and in Severodonetsk. And if they lose Severodonetsk, they can retreat to Lysychansk. At least many of them can. Probably not all of them will make it and hold out there. And we'll be talking about that in a minute. Political update. One, Russia is questioning Lithuania's independence in a new bill. So, this isn't just Putin talking out of his butthole. This is a little more official, which is a little terrifying, except attacking Lithuania would be absolutely insane because you would, they would trigger Article 5 faster than you can say Peter the Great. And speaking of Peter the Great, Putin is now comparing himself to Peter the Great. What did Peter the Great do? He had a war with Sweden and took back uh, Finland you know, took back. So brought Finland sort of back into the the Russian Empire. And so Putin Putin is now being very transparent about the fact that he just wants to take back territory. He wants to restore the Russian Empire. Absolutely crazy. Going definitely full Nazi here. There's just kind of like no room for debate anymore. This is a war of just pure imperialist, chauvinistic conquest. And that is not good news because... Uh, as long as the Russians are willing to support that, it means that for all for any promises that they make, that they are you know that their objectives are limited. They're not limited. We already knew that, but now we really really know it. They're super duper duper very much not limited, and they're just going to keep going. You know, they want they want all of Ukraine, they want Moldova, they want Lithuania, and they probably want other places too, like Latvia and Estonia. So very bad news there. But let's talk about the bold strategies and high stakes that we brought up here. So, first things first, the game's far from over, right? Ukraine could totally win and people talking about how Ukraine could totally win and they could drive the Russians out. Russia could win in as far as they could, they could exhaust the, this, again, this is the part I didn't think about last time. If the West. If the West does limit its yeah, if if the West does limit its support or or end up kind of like running out of steam to support, the Ukrainians are in a lot of trouble. The the Russians have so, so much more ammunition that the Ukrainians will, you know, we we know the Ukrainians have already run out of their 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 own ammunition, and the West has sent a lot, but not as much as Russia has by a long shot. So and again, Russia is like now using its old dumb ammunition, but it held on to it. And it seems silly at the time, but now it's being used, even though what it's being used for is uh, calling it silly is is generous. And so Russia, that's how Russia could win is if they just hang out long enough. And while the Ukrainians don't get tired, if the West gets tired of sending stuff and being involved, if they stop caring, which is, you know, it's possible Right. Like maybe the Russians are hoping to outlast Biden and hope that Trump gets back into power, at which point it would be, you know, another two and a half years of war. I don't know if the Russians can hold on, but and I don't know if Putin's literally going to survive. I don't know if Trump's going to survive. I don't know if Biden's going to survive. These are old dudes who are kind of sick, which is weird to think, right, that that, you know, these individuals who are old and could die matter so much. But, you know, that's history. So if the Russians can hold out long enough that, you know, NATO support starts dropping, and again, I think it seems unlikely that the Poles and the Germans who are right nearby are going to be like, sure, we'll just totally let Ukraine get taken over. Nothing bad will happen there. So I don't think it's likely, but that's how the Russians would win. The Ukrainians win if, you know, Putin dies and otherwise the Russians get tired of it. And so, you know, again, Ukrainians have the will and the skill and the people to win if it's well supplied, even if they somehow lose... The Donbass, you know, the Russians, they can declare victory, but at, like, some point they can't sustain, they're not going to sustain these operations ongoing forever. And, again, if the Ukrainians continue to be well-supplied, they will sustain this forever. They will keep fighting. That's how defenders work, right? This is where, like, this is the classic miscalculation that the freaking Nazis and Hitler had, was they said, you know, we'll invade, and Russia will fall like a house of cards. And they didn't, right? And this is the World War I Foolishness. We'll be home by Christmas because people think other people are going to give up. And it turns out like that was the case in the 1800s because life didn't change all that much when you gave up. But but in particular, because the Russians have been so barbaric and they've been so barbaric, right? Murdering civilians and re-education camps and capturing and exporting people and conscripting them to fight against their own people. I mean, they've been so torturing. They've been so, so horrible to the Ukrainian people, and they've been so clear that they want to wipe kind of the Ukrainian culture off the map that the Ukrainians are never going to give up, right? Just like when the Nazis were like, oh yeah, we're going to turn the Lebensraum out east into our territory, and we're going to enslave the Slavs because they're untermenschen, right? They're like, oh yeah. And then they'll totally buckle. Now that we've said that out loud, they'll totally fall over like a house of cards. No! Right? And the Russians have not learned their own lessons that they taught others, that when they're on defense, they're angry, and they're not willing to surrender to people who want to destroy them completely. It just doesn't happen. And so as long as the Ukrainians have ammunition, they're going to keep fighting. And anyone who thinks otherwise is crazy, I think. But let's turn to the bold strategy, because this is actually really, really, really interesting. Last episode, I was looking at what is now a like significant salient for Lysychansk and uh, Severodonetsk. And you need to go to a website called ukraine.liveuamap.com. That's L I V E U A M A P.com. And you need to look at what's going on here. And you need to look at that little pocket in the east where Severodonetsk and Lysychansk are. Holy smokes, it looks really, 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 really bad. It looks terrible. They're in a bad spot. And so I was thinking when I was making that episode, God, these guys need to retreat. They are screwed, right? And they can't afford to lose that many troops. And I was kind of thinking like, why not? Why not retreat? And this is the bold strategy part. And this is the part I didn't think about. And it makes, you know, Zelensky's been part of this, but it makes the, you know, makes Zelensky and it makes the Ukrainian political and military leadership so genius is a couple things are true. One, Russia's really bad at urban warfare. We've seen this. We saw it in Mariupol. We saw it with them, you know, we saw it in Kharkiv. We saw it in Sumy. Russia is not able to make serious progress in urban warfare. And it's because they don't have a ton of artillery coming down. They actually have to fight the Ukrainians sort of like face-to-face in the streets. And their morale is low and they're not that skilled. And this is part of the problem with Russian doctrine is there's way too little ability for these troops to make decisions on the ground, to have initiative. And so, you know, it's like go take this point. That's your that's your objective. We've played out the whole thing. Just do it. And they go take it and then like they don't know what to do or they try to take it and they're under a lot of resistance. So they don't have alternatives. And so they just like go into the meat grinder until they go like f this, we're out of here and then they back out. Um, and so they're terrible at urban warfare and they're probably chewing up tons and tons of tons of troops. We don't know how many, but they're probably chewing up tons of troops. So they're bad at urban warfare. So why are they pushing Severodonetsk so hard well it turns out this is where this is where Zelensky read the Russians right if you look at that map a little to the west of Lysychansk is this like arbitrary looking dotted line that is the last part of Donetsk the Donetsk Oblast or in the views of the Russians the Donetsk People's Republic that the Russians don't hold it's the last part of Donetsk that the Russians don't hold Right, So it's these two towns, Severodonetsk and Lysychansk, which you otherwise would have never heard of in your entire life unless you're listening from Ukraine. And so the Russians politically have to take it. They're obsessed with getting the symbolic victory in completing the liberation of the Luhansk Oblast. They have to do it because they said that's their war aim. And so... um, Zelensky bet that they would pour everything into urban warfare to pull it off. That they'd be willing to, even though they know they're bad at urban warfare, and they'd much rather sit back and just chuck artillery all day. Apparently, like, there there was intelligence that Putin told his commanders, you will take the Donetsk Oblast by June 1st. Well, guess what? It's June 12th, and they haven't taken it. So these guys, and they are guys, the Russian leadership, you know, they're all men. These guys are under extreme pressure... From their boss, who, you know, we talked about this, who has the dictator problem. These guys are under immense pressure to finish the job here. And if they don't, they get fired or worse, imprisoned or worse, dead. Right, So they're like, we have to take it. Throw everything out of it. Go, 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 go. Right? Even though it's completely irrational to burn this many troops. You know, this has been something that the UK intelligence ministry has been talking about. though, And ISW, the Institute for the Study of War. That the amount of troops committed and the, the amount of material being lost and troops being lost is just strategically insane. It is strategically indefensible for Russia to be pouring this much into taking Sverdanetsk now. But they politically have to because Putin said so and he's crazy. Like he's he's off his rocker at this point, right? You have a madman running the country and he's looking for a political win that he doesn't have yet. Like he can't pretend, as much as he can pretend all sorts of other stuff, he can't pretend he has Lysychansk yet. It's too obvious that he doesn't. But he, so he can't pretend that he has all the net skull blasts. He can't say, he can't have a parade and say, yeah, we did it. We liberated it. And so he's like, we have to take it. We have to take it. We have to take it. And at some point, he feels like he has to demonstrate progress on the current stated aims of the war, liberation of these two provinces. Because, you know, look, the, the Russian people, as apolitical as they are, they're dealing with 20% interest rates in order to tame inflation and keep the ruble from going off. On a side note, the ruble is doing quite well, but a big part of that is because it's not being traded internationally. Russia is at major risk of a default on its loans over the next couple of months because the U.S. closed that loophole. And so so like things, the economy would get much, much worse. And like, you gotta remember, you know, half of Russia's GDP, which again, like most GDP is consumption, half of Russia's GDP pulled out. You know, like people see and feel this. They see and feel gas prices are high. Actually in Russia, they're probably not so high. I actually don't know one way or the other but oil is cheap in Russia. So probably not, but like food prices are high and they don't have access to things like sugar because that's imported. So a lot of these imports, they're just not getting anymore. They can't get cars. Like the purchase like the cars car purchases dropped off 85% year over year. Eighty five percent. Right. And they don't get, you know, the, the wealthier Russians in Moscow and St. Petersburg don't get access to their favorite Western brands. boohoo, Right. But this is the kind of thing that Russians do really feel it. And they're being told that this is a great patriotic war that, you know, that will win any day now that we're fighting the West. Right. But like at some point, war exhaustion is a thing. And so what starts happening when you get too much war exhaustion? Well, a big part of it is Russians are leaving, right? Those wealthy Russians, those talented Russians are leaving. They're they're not going to overthrow Putin anytime soon. You know, don't get me wrong. Like Putin is paranoid and for a good reason. You know, it's not paranoia if they're all out to get you. Um, Putin has been killing enough people that he's clearly afraid of getting offed. You know, he's been killing oligarchs. Well, at this point, if I'm an oligarch, I'm either like trying to pack up shop and get the heck out or I'm trying to kill Putin before he kills me because that's what happens when you're a crazy tyrant. Right, is people don't just go like, well, you killed my six closest buddies. I'm just going to sit here and do nothing and wait to die. This isn't a video game. This isn't a video game on easy mode. And so, and so there's this like urgency that the Russians have. And Zelensky and team called it and said, they're going to pour everything they can into this and we can bleed them. We can bleed them and we can make them hurt so much and exhaust themselves. Exhaust their supplies Right. Because at some point, we, we don't know what's happening to Russian supplies, but at some point, they start to run out, exhaust their morale, and exhaust their best troops. And that's probably the most important thing is destroying, you know, the Ukrainians call it liquidating, killing, right? destroying Russia's best equipment and their best troops, which are being poured in these areas because it's so important to take them. And the Ukrainians have such a tactical advantage, right? But the Russians are putting tanks in there. The Ukrainians, guess what? In urban warfare, they can use all the javelins and stingers that the Americans gave them. You can't do that along just an open front, right? Along like the farmland areas or like the swamps or just like the plains, you know, you can't just hide and pop out and and use those javelins anymore because the Russians, you know, when they're advancing, they're using combined arms warfare. So they learned, right? They're using tanks supported by artillery, supported by infantry, supported by air power. And so you can't just hide and pop out and launch javelins. But you can in urban combat because in urban combat, you can only send small detachments at a time that are only partially supported. So the Ukrainians can ambush and ambush and ambush. And that's what they're doing. And so the Russians have sent their best stuff because they have to take Severodonetsk and Lysychansk and it's been a month and they're getting chewed up. And that was the bet that was made. Or that's the reward part of the bet. The risk part of the bet is that Ukrainian troops who also have some of their best in there um, and a lot of advanced equipment and a lot of skill And a lot of morale risk, right, they're in this pocket that's at risk of getting surrounded and cut off and eliminated. And that's the other reason the Russians, like, got baited into it was like, man, if we can do this, if we can come and, like, take these guys out, right, we're in a great position, you know, because we take it out some of the best of Ukraine's troops. And so it's this really high-risk thing for both sides. Who's better? Who's better? Right? Who can win this? This is like Stalingrad. This is a lot like Stalingrad. It looks like the lines are pretty stable, so it looks like a stalemate. This ain't World War One. This is World War II type combat. So this is not a stalemate. It is a slug fest. And the Russians are assaulting over and over and over again because they're getting more and more impatient, and that's making them dumber. And they're getting chewed up. And so it looks like things are going, it looks like things are going Zelensky's way. It looks like the Russians are being dumb and they'll continue to be dumb because they're getting more and more desperate. They're not just going to slow down and they are going to continue to throw their best, brightest, smartest, most trained, most veteran troops and their best equipment into this and get beat the hell up. Wild stuff. And so because the Russians are also doing that, it also means that the Russians have their worst troops elsewhere. So all the assaults that they're making, you know, they have their best troops, sorry, in Severodonetsk and Papanza. Those are the two areas their best troops are. And Papanza, they're getting repelled. And severodon they're getting held. Izium is that attempt to do a big pocket, a big cauldron, rather than a small cauldron, right? So Papanza is the small cauldron. If you look at the map, you'll see this. is the big cauldron. Izium is slowed down. It, it's just going nowhere, right? Again, they're sending people, they're getting repelled. So people are dying. And Kharkiv, you know, they're managing to hold, which is interesting. They're mostly doing spoiling attacks to try to keep the Ukrainians from pushing them all the way to the border because the Russians are trying to just hold down Ukrainian troops in Kharkiv. They're trying to keep Ukrainian troops from being able to reposition there. They just want pressure in that area. Um, Ukrainians have so far been unable to totally counterattack, but it's probably the case that the Ukrainians pulled a lot of their best troops from there. But the Ukrainians are like, hey, we'll just go take Kursan. And they're making serious progress in Kursan. And if they can take Kursan, then the Ukrainians can pull some of their best troops. The Russians will do the same, but the Ukrainians can pull their troops because there's a river that protects them. And so a big river that protects them, really big. And so the Ukrainians can take Kursan and then reposition and focus more and more on the Eastern front. And, but the thing is, the Ukrainians have so many more troops that basically the more, and again, it's urban warfare, that the more both sides are pouring resources into this fight, the more of an advantage the defenders have. Again, just like Stalingrad. This is going to be little Stalingrad. Now, had the... Nazis won Stalingrad, it might have been a different story. Who knows? But the Nazis really did exhaust themselves in Stalingrad. Now, it's the case in Stalingrad, if you look at it, the Nazis lost far fewer troops than the Russians and far less material than the Russians. Like, the Russians lost a lot more. But that's the thing about being the defender. You have more troops to call on, right? Because your people are willing to come out and fight to defend you. And so you can lose more troops. You can eat more casualties because, one, you can replace them. And, two, you don't lose morale as much right because people are motivated to defend their home especially because the nazis and in this case the russians are such barbarians so as again while the russians have the only advantage the russians really have is in artillery the ukrainians have all the other advantages and they made a bet and so far it's working out really really well for them as far as we can tell so that's the bold strategy and the big risk and it seems to be working and i hadn't thought about it i kept thinking like why are they holding this it's to make the russians make bad decisions and the Russians are making bad decisions. Um, And this grind of manpower and material will, again, the Ukrainians want this because they don't want to just sit there and play an artillery duel all day. They want to fight because, you know, fighting is how they win. Sitting back and eating artillery is not how they win. So kind of hats off to the Ukrainians for being willing to take this risk. But there is still a significant risk. Again, the troops in Severodonetsk are in some ways, they're not totally surrounded the way that they were in Mariupol. Like they're not lost you know, Maria Pola, they were lost. They were just holding down the Russians as long as possible. And Sverdinesk, they're not lost. They've not even lost the city yet. Like, they could win in some way. They could hold out. It seems unlikely that holding out forever is the winning move. It seems likely that letting lysi continue to build and build and build and build fortification and stack and stack and stack and stacks endless supplies is the winning move. Buy time. Buy time for months. And then retreat when Sverdinesk is just, you know, unfortunately, just rubble. And then hold Lysychansk, which is going to be much easier to hold than Severodonetsk. Because here's the thing, and this is why this is so brilliant. The Russians, if they take Severodonetsk, they still have to take Lysychansk, right? It's, It's Severodonetsk isn't the win for the Russians, that political win that they need so badly. The Donetsk blast is the win. And again, if you look at that line, it's to the west of Lysychansk. And so the Russians, after they take Severodonetsk, they have to take Lysychansk, and Lysychansk is so, so much easier to defend, and it will be supplied, and it will be um, fortified. So even if the Russians do cut them off... They're going to be super well supplied and well fortified. And so what that means is that the Ukrainians can counterattack from the West, even if the Russians do surround them. So even if the troops, the Ukrainian troops in Lysitschansk, even if they get surrounded, they're not doomed far from it. This isn't Mariupol. Because right, if you look down at Mariupol, what was happening is the Russians came from both directions. And they'd already like closed off the north really, really well. The Ukrainians were on the retreat. At this point, the Ukrainians have a very, very fortified area in uh, Slovyansk, Bakhmut, and in particular, Kramatorsk. And so they've got a lot of troops nearby that aren't going anywhere anytime soon. And so even if they can't supply Lysychansk, they can attack and attack and attack and attack the Russians from behind. So like you've surrounded Lysychansk, but like, hey, guess what? From one direction, you're kind of surrounded too, right? The Russians who are on the Western side of Lysychansk, should that happen, they have to fight on both sides, which is hard. And so it becomes a nasty, nasty fight for the Russians to try to take Lysychansk. And so there are all sorts of scenarios that end really well for the Ukrainians at this point for having chosen to take that risk and eat those casualties, right? And again, like, just to, get, just to, just to take a, a second for the people here, it is horrible, horrible warfare. Again, artillery raining down on you all the time. Urban warfare is ugly. You know, you have these young people. Again, it's not just young men. Uh, you have these young people, 19, 18, 20 years old, who are seeing horror every day and who are dying and mothers whose kids will never see them again and spouses who will never see their loved ones again children who will never see their parents again it's horrifying what these people have to go through and then they die you know their their lives at 18 19 are cut off and just like the the boys who stormed normandy and the boys who fought in iwo jima and the boys who fought in guadalcanal Right. It's like glorious. Winning is great, but God, the human cost is unbelievable. And for the civilians, right? Who are just trying to live their lives. You know, I'm calling the Russians barbaric. It's doing a little bit of the thinking for you, but I think it's hard to deny. Yeah, so so at this point the strategy has largely paid off. Again, it was super bold, especially when the Papanza breakthrough happened. So the Papanza breakthrough, they'd sent the Wagner troops, they'd sent the super elite. Russian airborne division, the VDV, which is kind of like the SEALs, you know, they'd sent veteran troops and they pushed out of Papanza and they were so close, so close, so close, one kilometer from cutting off the road of life, T thirteen oh two. And that road is still being used to resupply and reinforce Lysychansk. And had they taken it, it that that gamble, the gamble that the Ukrainians made might not have paid off. But at this point it's already paid off. And the longer they can keep that road open, the better it is, and the more hopeless things look for the Russians, I think. I suspect. Fog of war makes this really hard. We don't have stats the way that we would in, like, Hearts of Iron video game. So even if the Russians do take it, you know, again, the troops in Lysychansk are in pretty good shape, but it was extremely gutsy, but played very, very well. Russia's overcommitted, and they are a lot of trouble. So, the other thing to note about Lysychansk, so, uh, again, it's it's, let's think about how well Defended this is. One, again, lots of fortifications. Just tons. Kind of like Kiev was. Because they've had time. But two, the river that separates Severodonetsk from Lesychansk. One, the bridges are gone. But two, even if they weren't, the Ukrainians blow the bridges. So it'd have to be a contested pontoon crossing right? Which the Russians have shown that they're terrible at, and they're short on pontoons, and they do it under fire because there's a ton of Ukrainians on the other side, and it turns out Lysychansk is significantly higher in elevation. So even when you get to the other side, you like literally need to climb, and it's hard to get tanks moving and stuff like that. Like It's just a disaster. From the north, Lysychansk is pretty safe. Why? Because the Russians are on the other side of the river everywhere to them, except Izium, which is so far away, it like doesn't effing matter at this point. The south is where there's risk, but it means that the Ukrainians, once they retreat to Lysychansk, they can really focus on a counterattack against Papanza, and they can make that move over to Papanza faster than the Russians can. And they don't need as many troops in Lysychansk holding it down because, you know, like having a castle, your garrison can hold out. You know, they can repel attacks of forces 10 times their size. And they've built a castle in Lysychansk surrounded by a moat. And so those Ukrainian troops, you know, they probably need a rest, but so will the Russian troops, but they can counterattack in Papanza. And if they can clear Papanza, or at least push back Papanza, well, they can hold out indefinitely. There's not a whole lot the Russians can do with that, unless the Russians can push up through Papanza, because they're not crossing that now. It's not just Papanza; it's the Papanza area. The Russians have crossed the river down southeast in Toshkivka, but the fighting continues in Toshkivka, and the Russians have not taken it yet. If they take Toshkivka, Tush, they can presumably threaten from the south, although it doesn't. They don't have the highway yet at that point, so the there is a battle for Toshkivka and. Hershka? Presumably it would be a major priority for the Ukrainians to push the Russians back from and to hold Hershka. Herska? I don't know. Herska, I think. Anyway, so the really the only threat to Lysychansk would be from the south. So yeah. It's it's it was super bold and super gutsy. And much like, you know, I talked about this back in the Fog of War days for those of you who who followed me back then. If you want the archive, it's Fog of War with two Gs, F-O-G-G, fogofwar.blogspot.com. But, you know, we talked about the city of Kobani in which the Kurds were pushed back by ISIS over and over and over again until they got to Kobani. Um, and it, everything looked bleak and lost, but it was a long battle and the Kurds strengthened themselves and ground down ISIS and then counterattacked and drove them all the way back, basically almost out of all of northern Syria. Again, this is like Stalingrad. This is like Kobani. It's that big a deal. The next year of the war will turn on this battle. And if the Russians lose it, they're they, it's over, really. Now, they might continue to make the Ukrainians suffer and stay in there and draw casualties from both sides and artillery the heck out of everything. But the Russians, if they can't win in Severodonetsk and Lysychansk, they're not winning anywhere. And it would be the most incredible underdog fight that I can think of in war since, since the maybe the Athenians holding off the Persians, that kind of thing. Like that crazy. So yeah, this is a big deal and it's really interesting. And I think the Ukrainians are going to win it just given how it's been going. Because again, even if even if they lose Severodonetsk, which they'll probably do at some point, that's just the beginning. That was the, That's the easy part. And taking Lysychansk is much, much harder. And the Russians won't have a lot of good troops left to do it. So I think this is where the Russian advance halts because of the bold strategies and high stakes that the Ukrainians were willing to take. So we'll see you next time, probably with a not-Ukraine update. I think it's going to be a good one. I have been working on it. It's halfway done. But until then, my friends... Don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Eric signing off. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states.